get to know yourself first, get to know your own personality attributes that lead to your financial decision making or your own money beliefs or your own family history around money and how that shaped you. And the more that you can become self-aware of the biases or assumptions that you hold, the better you will be at recognizing when they come up with clients. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Megan McCoy from Manhattan, the Little Apple. Welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited about this conversation. I mean, where you're focused is is super intriguing to me. It's uh, the psychology therapy, you know, it's the mental cognitive side of finance and what drives decisions. So we're going to talk about all this and how advisors can use kind of some of the things that we've learned from psychology and therapy and counseling and all that such. And so I'm stoked. I'm really, really excited about this. Before we get into the fun stuff, well, this I think all of it's fun. I'm always super curious. So you're an uh, associate professor at Kansas State. Mm-hmm. I'm an assistant professor, which is like the first step in your faculty towards tenure, which is funny because it's actually a legit role. But my dad said, who are you assistant to? <laughs> that is a good question. Who are you an assistant to? Are you assistant to like a tenured professor or is that like... That's just the language. It's assistant before tenure, associate after tenure. <laughs> okay, so assistant. So I said associate. So I already progressed you like yeah. drastically. That's phenomenal. That I mean, I think count, you're right? associate. I think you're a tenured <laughs> professor in my eyes. I mean, I, I, I don't. Um, <laughs> assistant professor. That's actually a really good understanding. I never knew that. That, that shows. That's We were talking about where I went to school and I, I love my alma mater a lot, but like, you know, we don't learn that stuff at Arizona State. So they just say professor. We don't have assistant associate. They may call themselves that. But this is really interesting. You know, you're focused in this area of financial therapy, but so you're an assistant professor. You're also on the on the board of the financial therapy clinic associate as a freelance. You're you're there as well. I always like to start these conversations and say, all right. The 13-year-old Megan McCoy, is it like as 13-year-old Megan McCoy, I was like, I ultimately want to work towards being a tenured professor at Kansas State and talk about financial therapy. And maybe that was it. But what did the 13-year-old Megan McCoy want to do? Honestly, the 13-year-old Megan and even like the six-year-old Megan wanted to be a therapist. I always wanted to make the world a better place, make people happier, take care of others. And so I knew I wanted to be a therapist from day one. Being in the financial arena was probably my 13-year-old Megan's nightmare. (laughs) I did not like money. I didn't like math. I didn't like right and wrong answers. I always liked to hear like the gray and study like the in-between and what could be. And so having uh, the financial arena was a very new endeavor for myself. (laughs) I love that. So I could see that at like six years old, right? Like were you like diagnosing your friends and being like, let me... (laughs) You know, they're coming to you. They're coming to you and be like, I've had this problem with a, my boyfriend over here. And you're like, well, let's talk about it. You know, sit down and let's have a conversation. Was that was that the six-year-old absolutely, Megan? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that until um, AirPods were invented, every plane ride was free therapy for whoever was sitting near me oh, <laughs> in my entire God. life. <laughs> so, yes. I have to say that that's my worst nightmare because... <laughs> <laughs> not gonna lie, not gonna lie. When someone comes in and starts talking to me, I'm like, "All right, I got a, I got a big call," and they're like, "You can't t- make phone calls on the airplane." I'm like, "Oh, I got, I gotta listen to this <laughs> podcast." I, I love that. That's hilarious. So, so walk us through this journey from 13 year old. You want to be a therapist, not in the financial world, but now you're ended up in the financial world. So, walk us through that journey to where you are today now, assistant professor at Kansas State. 
Yeah. Yeah. So now I work in the financial planning department. And how it happened was I was lucky enough to go to the University of Georgia for my PhD in family therapy, not anything to do with finances. And there was a wonderful clinic that's still running called the Expire Clinic, where they had interdisciplinary uh, services available to clients in, in Athens, Georgia. So I worked alongside financial planners, helping individuals, couples, and families navigate financial stressors and their impact on their emotional well-being. And I had been a therapist. By the time I started my PhD, I started doing therapy in 2000 and was it six? 2006. So it was about, I don't know, 10 years of therapy. And as I got into this work, I realized all those clients I'd seen for 10 years prior where I had never brought up money because, again, I didn't like money, I didn't know money, and I definitely wasn't competent to talk about money. All of them had underpinnings of financial stress or financial conflict or financial worry or financial power and control issues. They were in every single family therapy case I'd ever seen. And I had just avoided it because like we kind of joked about, most therapists like myself do not like thinking about numbers. And most financial professionals don't like thinking about therapeutic things. Like those two things, we kind of self-select into our own majors for a reason. And so we've the ability to intertwine those was so new, but so powerful. I love that idea because I want to dig into this concept, this idea that therapists don't like to talk about numbers. I never thought, I mean, I never yeah. you know, put it that way. And then advisors don't like to talk about therapy. They, they don't want to be a therapist. They want to talk about numbers and therapists want to talk about feelings. And yeah. and so it's like this, like, it's like this X that happens. Walk me through that. Like how, how do we blend the two, right? Like how do we help advisors get over their concerns with their talking you know, about feelings, yeah. the, the ooey gooey stuff. Um, how, how do we, how do we help yeah. navigate those people? One of my favorite things about financial planners is I think uh, not to be stereotypical, but most financial planners have these incredible frontal lobes, meaning they're great at future orientation. They're great at saying, here's the logic, here's the right answer, right? If that worked with our clients, like we'd all be out of a job. They'd be doing the right thing. They wouldn't be coming to see us because clients need more than logic. If logic worked, I would eat three meals a day and work out every night and sleep eight hours. And I don't do that because logic doesn't work. And so I think for many financial planners, the entree into this client psychology, financial therapy world is just expanding their repertoires of intervention past logic into understanding that clients need more than here's what you should do. Rather, they need to learn about their motivation. They need to learn about what obstacles they're facing. They need to learn about how to say things simply and not scary. Like those mm -hmm. kind of mini steps are a great entree into the financial therapy client psychology world. So financial therapy, and what I hear you saying is it's basically like we need more frameworks, right? But there's also like an aspect of identification of the uh, of the situation of what's causing the the root reaction from the client like why are they not making the decisions why are they feeling upset or frustrated or fearful like what is digging down and that then leads to having to ask questions yes. and and understand feelings but it's also identifying what stage they're at and not trying to press them too much and navigate them so how is that what financial therapy is and what are those kind of mental hurdles that advisors need to get over that makes them comfortable going a little bit deeper? Because it kind of feels like we're stepping on the toes, like we're not therapists, so we shouldn't get down that level. 
how do we overcome that from a mental side? Yes, I love this. This has so many things. First of all, you describe pretty much the curriculum of the financial therapy courses when you describe that. We have sections on how to listen so we can understand our clients' motivations. We have sections on stages of change to see when they're ready to take action. We have sections on how to ask better questions. All of that is those intro-level counseling-like communication skills. They are not the, the therapy skills that reflects on the client's past or, or uncovers traumas or deals with diagnoses that are beyond the scope. They are communication skills that the greatest communicators will have, whether a financial planner or a therapist or somebody else on the streets. Those can be learned by financial planners without having to worry about the scope of competence issue. Now, financial therapy is this wide field, and there's so many amazing researchers and practitioners and, and academics trying to push the field for, further. But interestingly, I don't think we'll have a consensus about what financial therapy is. My perspective is financial therapy is the combination of both mental health and financial planning services, but it starts with your home discipline. So if I'm a therapist, I'm going to do some conversations about budgeting or thinking about financial goals, but I'm not going to get into investment advice or, or insurance advice. That's outside my scope of competence. Just like I train my planners in my program to do those communication skills, to ask the better questions, to learn about stages of change and, and solution focus or motivational interviewing, but not to, to go into a family of origin discussion. Mm. So I think that line of home discipline is how I've always managed scope of competence, but I think a lot of brilliant people in this area are kind of navigating it in different ways. You know, I love that the concept underlying the foundation of financial therapy, because when, when I hear the word therapy, it's like, ooh, not really. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm okay with it. Like, I'm okay being vulnerable and having like a deep conversation. But like, there's like a there's a there's a line that you don't cross. But the foundation from what I'm hearing you say is that it's all about matter of take the word therapy out. It's communication skills, right? right? And yeah. so, you know, you mentioned two that I, I want to dig into, which is listening and better questions. So let's start with listening. The financial planners that you work with, what are those at the beginning of you working with them? What does their listening skills look like? How would you describe their listening skills? Like yeah. maybe three examples. And then afterwards, like what is good listening? Everybody's like, I'm a good listener. I hear what <laughs> you're saying. Like, but what is good listening? Yeah. You know, I think it's funny because the students I work with at Kansas State kind of self-selected into a program that pushes this behavioral client psychology thing. So they are good listeners to begin with. I think the problem is often with especially newer financial planners is you're so worried about demonstrating your goodness or you're or your selling yourself so much that you're trying to become an expert on a person before you've learned enough to be an expert in their mm. life. You know what I mean? And so I think listening is being able to put aside any prejudgment of what I need to say or what I need to demonstrate or what do I need to prove and being able to truly hear and 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 want to know more. Like we use a, a term in, in therapy a lot called the not knowing stance, where it's like, I, I have met 60 people who overspent, but you're the 61st person who overspent. And your reasons, your motivations, what you overspent on may be different than those other 60s. And I'm curious to understand you, not put you in that bucket of the others. It's almost, it reminds me similar of like the concept of curse of knowledge, right? You know, the, the prejudgment idea. And, and I love that becoming an expert before you hear, because I think every advisor, especially new advisors and planners, they go in with a script. So they're thinking 
they're thinking about what to say before they actually hear what the person has to tell them. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like this gets into like presence and like being truly in the conversation. What are some of those like tactics or, or how can how can individuals you know, catch themselves from that and be more present in the conversation and, and kind of overcome that curse of knowledge or that preconceived judgment or whatever it may be that, that tends to happen. Yeah. I you know. I think everybody has to come up with their own tricks, but I'm a talker, as you probably can guess. But something that helped me with clients is I once read the study that the best therapy sessions are where the therapist talked the least. And it struck me, they measured all these different things, but it was how quiet the therapist was that really stuck with me. And so I try to let silence happen in conversations with clients. I try to be patient and ask questions. I try to remember that. And I'll do some grounding activities, like where I'll mindfully say, let me ground myself. Let me make sure I'm not over-caffeinated or, or anxious or tired or any of those reasons that cause me to like word vomit or just pressure talk and make sure those are kind of addressed beforehand. And really, like for listeners who want to get into this world but don't want to be a therapist, I think the best advice I have is kind of based on that is that idea of like get to know yourself first, get to know your own personality attributes that lead to your financial decision making or your own money beliefs or your own family history around money and how that shaped you. And the more that you can become self-aware of the biases or assumptions that you hold, the better you will be at recognizing when they come up with clients. Mm. Yeah. And I think the the idea of practicing listening can happen every interaction you have, right? Your spouse, your friend, your kids. Well, maybe not your kids, but no. Um, <laughs> yeah, everybody, right? It can happen across the board yeah. and like really focusing on that. Now, I want to go to the next section, which is about questioning. Asking good questions, which starts with listening because then you can ask questions about what they said. But like what makes a good question and and what and I think that there's always this thing with questioning that I feel that that everybody does. They try to make the leading question to where they want them to be as opposed to an yes. open ended question that could take them somewhere where they where it's unknown. Yeah. So what is it? Is that a bad thing to do leading questions? And then what makes a good question? And how can we become better questioners? Oh, man, there's this great article. I wish I could remember who wrote it. His name was like Tom, Carl Tom, maybe T-H-O-M. But it was about the seven different types of questions that some questions like Closed-ended questions serve a purpose to calm a client down, to give them a sense of like, oh, I know some stuff. I got this. I'm on a roll, right? Whereas that's going to only serve some purposes. Sometimes you open it up and be able to let the client talk and feel heard and feel validated. Other times you want to do leading questions to get to an end goal. So it's not like any kind of question is necessarily bad. It's understanding the purpose behind the question. Mm -hmm. And again, thinking about, I know I sound like a broken record, but like when you're doing those leading questions, that means you have decided that you are an expert on what this person needs. And so really reflecting, have I gotten to the point where I truly understand this person's values, their needs, like their desires? Because oftentimes we don't even know our own needs, our own values, our own desires. So to assume you know someone else is, is a big assumption. Yeah. And trying to say, like, I love that point that you said, like, well, this is the 61st person that's come in. And like they could be different than the 60th, but like we all, I think, assume that they're everybody's similar. So we're like, oh, yeah, you know, you're just like one of these clients. And then that yeah. doesn't really 
hit well on someone when you're like, oh, you're just like my other, you know, Joe Smith <laughs> down the street. Yeah. It, and that leads to some of the other research that you've done, which is around trust and commitment, which is like the cornerstone of our industry, right? If you want to have a long lasting practice, you've got to build trust and commitment. What are some of those keys that you found in research? And I assume that's becoming a good listener. It's, it's asking questions, but, you know, getting deep into the relationship to make trust and commitment. What does that look like? And And is there... Does the industry have a different perception of do they think that people trust them, but they really don't? Yes, okay. <laughs> that is true. I think we we were lucky enough to get a grant funded by FPA and Alliance to study the responses from both planners and clients on questions about trust, communication skills, return on investment, things like that. And what we found is that planners overestimated how much their clients trusted them. They also overemphasized how much the actual return on investment, financially speaking, mattered to clients. And what we found is much more the sense the client had that you were out to serve them, that you didn't have alternative motives, that you had shared values, which is heavy to think about because that means you as a planner has to decide what of yourself are you going to disclose to your clients? And, and, you know, a lot of planners, um, Dr. Megan Lertz, who I'm a huge fan of, is talking about this a lot more lately, but a lot of planners are like, I just need more clients, I need more clients. No, you need clients that match you in the terms of you're going to enjoy their company, you're going to be a good fit for them, you're not going to be stressed out and burnt out from serving them. And so this idea of shared values between you and your clients requires you to be understanding of your self-disclosure patterns. It also requires communication skills and feeling heard. And so you're right. Like, even if they are exactly like Joe Smo down the street, that's not going to feel good to them. So who cares if you're right if they don't feel like heard and validated by you? So it's better to assume they're different. Megan Lertz is awesome. I'm happy you mentioned her name. She's phenomenal. She is so, so, so good. You know, you, you mentioned this idea of like shared values. And I know Daniel Crosby does a lot of like the uh, imagery of, you know, what, pe- what advisors think. It's like returns, et cetera, et cetera. And then what the client wants, which is like shared value relationship, trust, et cetera. <laughs> it's like way off. Um, yeah. But shared values, shared values, though, brings me to the point of vulnerability, which yeah. is something that is kind of like a bad word in our industry. It's like we've got people are coming to us because they're coming with their their most prized asset, which is their money and their savings. And they only get one shot at retirement. And so we have to show them that we are we know everything um, yeah. and we can't be vulnerable in your research, have you found, or if not, then like just in your opinion, like what is the balance between vulnerability? Like what's too much vulnerability and what's n- what's not enough? Because I think yeah. that advisors right now, in my opinion, who I talk with are on one side of the not enough, but I don't know where that pendulum middle ground is. And I'm curious of what you've seen in research in, in your profession. Yeah. Well, First of all, I think not enough vulnerability sets you up for failure because when we have market downturns, then your inability to control the entire economic stability of the universe will come back and bite you. So there needs to be some level of vulnerability. But this question needs to be couched in all kinds of other variables, like your age, your gender, your race, ethnicity. All of that will give the power, the client a sense of power or not power. And so 
the answer kind of changes based on your demographics. Like perhaps if I walk into a room as a female, as seemingly not as older as some planners, you know, I may have to demonstrate less vulnerability at the beginning to establish my credibility. And then once a relationship is formulated, then can move into more vulnerability as trust is established. If you are like a 65-year-old gray-haired planner in a suit, more vulnerability is going to be better because they're going to they're going to already have that credibility as you walked in the door. Super interesting because you know, as you're saying that is that I think about when I was younger in the industry and first getting my first few clients, like it was like buttoned up professional, <laughs> like yes. they don't need to know about my, my yeah. last weekend nights out and stuff like that. Like that's not the right time. But now that I'm, I've been in the industry, I'm more established. Like I lead with like my kids and like talk yeah. about my kids and all that type of stuff. And I think about my dad who's in the industry and he does the same thing. And you know, I never really thought about it that way in in that sense and so it's almost like vulnerability can be it's like a it's a double-edged sword it can be a bad thing like if a young advisor comes in and it's like vulnerable at the beginning they're going to lose credibility so that so i love that concept so if i'm like a 32 year old advisor been in the industry for five years am i able to be vulnerable like how do i judge that on my own is that is that kind of like a feel thing or is that like a years or market cycles type thing i'm curious just for those listening like well am i yeah. too young or too old or when you're for too old and old. i think again it comes down to client matching like perhaps if you are having to put on too much of an act in front of your clients then they're not the good fit for you and so i wish i had a formula to put on it but there was this amazing tongue-in-cheek article I read years ago, and hopefully one of your readers will find it for others, but it was about the evolution from suit to sweatshirt in, in financial planning, that every financial planner starts in a suit and ends in a sweatshirt in their career. And I always loved it, but I think there is some kind of evolution that can take place. The vulnerability can come in both um, time in your career as well as time working with that client. Mm. Yeah, I think I love that idea because I remember I used to wear a shirt and tie, right? Like now I I don't I wear golf shirts, um, and and it's a confidence thing, right? As you gain confidence, then yeah. then that, that's that scene, you know. And that's, I think you also kind of you alluded to it, may not mention it directly, is authenticity, right? You you yes. can't be you can't try to be vulnerable of someone you're not because over it's hard to hold that long term, right? Ultimately, that's going to be seen through, and then you're going to look like a liar or or or, or a fraud. Yeah, not in like a legal way, but just right. in the client size. You know, you you also do a lot of focus on financial well being. Yes, financial well being. So, you know, I'm curious, like, what is financial well being? Is it financial wellness? Like, and you talk about the principles of financial well being. So, define what financial well being is, and then let's talk about some of the principles of financial well being. Ah. Uh. So to me, financial well-being comes down to a peace of mind when it comes to your finances, a sense, even if you're not where you want to be today in your financial situation, that you have a plan in place to be there tomorrow, you know, and tomorrow might be, you know, 30 years down the road, but it's this peace of mind that you're doing everything right for what you have. I love this researcher named Elizabeth Dunn, which is probably where I stole that idea of principles of well-being because she has written some phenomenal articles on this topic. She talks about five basic principles. Let me see if I can get them all. The first is the idea that having more money doesn't necessarily make you happy. 
Instead, it's spending on others. And this doesn't always have to be charitable, but the charitable definitely works. But the example she gives is of college kids. They give half the college kids $20 and said, spend it on yourself, go buy pizza and beer. And then they give the other uh, half $20 and said, go spend on someone else. It can be a charity or a friend or anybody. And they asked them at the end of the day who was happier. And time after time after time after experiment after experiment in country after country, the people spent on others were happier. (laughs) The second part of her principles is the idea of don't buy now, buy later. Because we get more enjoyment in anticipation of things than actually having it. The research has found that the week before your vacation is always more pleasurable and happy than the week of your vacation because you have something to look forward to. And so if you're dreaming about buying a car, save up for it, enjoy it, blah, blah, blah. Do that for weeks, but then realize that once you get the car, there'll be diminishing returns, right? So I always tell my undergrads, I'm like, go shopping on Amazon all the time. Just don't check out. Like, leave it in the bucket. Enjoy shopping is fine. The other thing that is a principle of financial well-being is that buying small hedonistic pleasures tends to make us happier than big purchases. So we spent years telling people to give up Starbucks. I'm telling you, you can bring Starbucks in, but cut out the big stuff that you don't actually care about. I'm trying to think what else. She talks about how if we delay purchases, another thing happens is we tend to buy healthier or better things for ourselves. So the example she gives is this big table of snacks. And that if I were to say, come choose between candy and chips and soda or fruit and vegetables and pretzel sticks or whatever, hummus, whatever you want to say is healthy. Um, if I asked you to get a snack for right now, you'd be more likely to buy the junk food or get the junk food. If I asked you to go home with the snack and eat it tomorrow, you'd get the healthier thing. So anyway, there's all these. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. You know, the one thing about that idea is like spending on others. And also, you know, there's a, there's a podcast I was listening to and I, I, I can put the link in the show notes. I forget exactly the, the gentleman's name. He wrote a book and I think he said like live to zero or something. And, and it's from Peter, uh, it was on the Peter Attia podcast called The Drive. And he was talking about this concept of we, we always wait to do these things, right? We always wait to go on these experiences. We wait till we, we save. And he's like, we're saving money, but we're losing time. And there's only a certain segment of time that we can do certain things. Like if you want to go hike Mount Kilimanjaro, then you can't do that at 80. You've got to do it at 30 and you've got to figure out how to do it. And if you're like, well, I'm, I'm going to do that eventually, then you're going to miss out on that time slot to do that. And I think that that's almost like, he, he talks about it of like not mastering, but like reaching full fulfillment, right? And we talk about fulfillment in, in financial planning now. And it's really, and it's a, it goes counter to what advisors say, save for retirement, save for retirement and live in retirement. But like when you retire, there's only a certain number of things you can do. Right. And so, but, and like if you, and then he talked about, which I thought was super interesting was this like individual who left their money at, at, at their passing to a charity. And that's great. But he's like, if they would have just given them a smaller amount 30 years earlier, it would have been more impactful than giving it to them now. And you would have had those quality dividends that you could have lived on from a fulfillment side. And that's what this is financial well-being. So how do we merge this financial well-being concept and these kind of like countering views of helping for well-being financially and like fulfillment with traditional wealth management practices that says, save today and spend tomorrow basically and get as much as you can because you don't want to run out of money and and the theory is saying like die broke basically. Yeah, I will. I mean, I think there has been a slight movement. Um, Kids has had a great article come out about how 
We were also worried when we moved from defined benefit to defined contribution that people wouldn't have enough for retirement. And actually what we found is people had too much for retirement. They weren't spending it. So I think people are starting to recognize that we don't need just lofty 40 years from now financial goals because what happens is most likely we're going to waste our money unintentionally or let it like seek through because it's too long of a time horizon. And instead saying, what are our short-term goals? What are our mid-year goals? What are our individual couple and family goals? And if you break the financial goals that many ways, you have more times to celebrate the hard work that you put into your life. How do we, from a, I'm asking to put your psychology hat on, right? How do we get people to spend more money, right? Like I can't even get my retirees to spend money and I know they're not going to run out of the money, but I want them to spend the money because I know how much fulfillment it'll bring. So how do we, how can we get people to spend money after having 50 years ingrained in their brain to save money? Oh, I know. I think a big one is mental accounting. The fact that we treat different buckets of money differently. And so Pulling out of your savings feels a lot different than calling it your paycheck from your savings. And like that little tweak can be really powerful because you want to spend your paycheck. You do not want to spend your retirement savings. So I think those little things. And again, I think I I tried to talk my parents into going to see a planner forever. They didn't for a long time. They finally did because they wanted to take the grandkids to Disney World. And so the only reason they went was not for retirement, was not for insurance. It was to say, can I afford Disney World this year? And so I think being intentional about making those financial goals. What is your next family vacation? What is the next like reunion for your family? What is the next goal for your family? I think that can be really powerful for planners. And the, and the impact of, like, we talk about dividends of your investments, but the dividends that come from experiences that you, the sooner you do it, those dividends are extremely beneficial to your well-being. So, like, if we can, we can change the conversation and say, let's have these experiences earlier and often because those dividends are going to become exponential over time. I think that that just would be an amazing way to have the conversation. And I think framing those experiential experiences as fostering relationships can be really powerful. Like the reason experiential purchases make us happy is not from the cooking class. It is from being able to relive that cooking class with your partner or relive that cooking class with a friend. That social, like, ruminations about the past or what does that call Reflections of the past memories builds your network, builds your closeness, builds your intimacy. And so, yes, go do stuff with your loved ones and spend it's money experience, on it. <laughs> it's experiential investments that pay dividends forever, right? Yeah. The relationships that you build and the ability to talk about them forever, there's just a value to that, to the well-being of who you are, happiness, which is what we talk about in our firm, right, of creating happy retirees. That's our goal. So I want to move briefly to this concept of emotional intelligence, Ooh. emotional intelligence. And and I know you've done some work within re, with regards to emotional intelligence. And I, I'm curious of, you know, if we can visually paint, like what's an emotionally intelligent person look like and what's a non-emotionally intelligent person look like? <sighs> Man, it's a lot of what we talked about. It is listening for both the verbal and nonverbal cues to understand another person. I think it also goes back to like Brené's Brown's conversation about empathy versus sympathy. Mm-hmm. Like sympathy is just feeling bad for someone. I'm so sorry that happened to you. But empathy is being able to put yourself in their shoes and really reflect on similar life experiences that you've gone through that helps you be able to uh, touch the emotion that they're going through. I think that ability to say, 
I lost my pet, so I understand what it's like for them to lose their horse. I never owned a horse, but I know that pain. You know, mm -hmm. that empathy can let you address how you would like to be taken care of in that moment. And I think that becomes an emotionally intelligent person. So here's the million dollar question. Can you grow your emotional intelligence, increase your emotional intelligence? And if so, how? What, what wow. is... What do you what do you need to do? Like go see a, a psychic or a therapist or like what does it look like? I gotta tell you this. This is kind of a sidetrack. So remind me to go back to the actual question. But we just did this cool study where we made planners go see planners. It was eye opening that they described feeling financially naked. Like the vulnerability, the experience of what it was like to sit in the client's chair was so profound and and, and so educational for the planners that like I highly recommend all planners doing it. <laughs> I love that you use that verb, that analogy of feeling naked, because that's what I always tell people in, in presentations when I talk about planning is like, we're, we're having these people that don't know anything about us. It's basically like they're walking into a room of a thousand people naked. It's like, just tell us all your, all your things. Like we're going to judge you. So, I mean, like just like in the first thing you do when they sit down is like, we're just going to start bombarding them with questions. So, uh, how much do you make? Uh, how much have you saved? Ooh, it's, it's a tough thing. So I love that analogy. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's a great training module for young advisors to do is go sit and think about how that feels so that you can then become empathetic to your clients. All right. You told me to get you back on the question. So let's yes, get back to the question, the, right? I love that. How do we increase emotional intelligence? Is there, what's the way to do that? Is it to go see an advisor and put yourself in that situation, right? Like get those experiences. Yeah, I think definitely that could help. I think going to a therapist could definitely help. I think truly more making a, a marked decision to be interested in others. And, and I think that sounds so, so minor, so little, but I think once you get curious in like almost like a detective kind of way about others lived experiences, your emotional intelligence will grow because things like reading nonverbals will be part of your detective skills or like listening closely and asking them the right questions again becomes part of your detective skills. And I think the more you spend time getting to know people on that level, your emotional desire, well, your increased desire to get to know them will increase your emotional intelligence by accident too. So I have two more questions before we get to, uh, maybe, I don't know, we, we could probably ask a million more questions. I mean, I could probably have you here for another three hours and do a Tim Ferriss style podcast of like <laughs> a whole day's worth of talking. Uh, but, you know, you, you just launched a book. Uh, or you just wrote a book. Tell us a little bit about the book. And I, know, I, th I believe that inside the book, you talk a lot about counseling, which is what we're talking about here. But tell us about the book. Congratulations. Being an oh. author is tough. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I was so lucky. I have the best co-authors ever. The book I was going to look for up oh, right here is with Jamie Lynn Byron and Michelle Kruger and John Grable. It's financial planning counseling skills backwards. But I loved writing it because it was a chance to dive deeper into counseling like skills. I also really enjoyed writing more about what we call relational money disorders or how money gets messy between couples and families, how to navigate when perhaps adult children are being supported financially, and where is that line between scaffolding and enabling, when people are maybe lying or lying by omission about their financial situation with their partner, that financial infidelity, and how to navigate that. I think we were really intentional with this book, trying to create it 
as like simplified chapters that could kind of stand alone for each chapter. So we have PowerPoints and test questions and case studies that kind of help planners really think about how could I respond to this situation of appearing in my financial planning practice. I love that. And you, everybody should go and take a look at that book. It's an incredible educational material for us to learn more in this space. You know, you mentioned, which I, I wasn't planning on going down, but relational money disorders. I, mm. I, this is something that I've been thinking through a lot recently as well, is because usually in financial planning and wealth management, you're, you're talking to one spouse and, and getting the other spouse involved. Either they don't want to be involved or they, yeah, I don't know, they're, just, they're not yeah. into it. You know, what are some of those ways that you guys have, through your research, you and the team have found that help to better understand how people deal with money. I love what United Capital has done, did before they, and they may still do that Goldman, but like of understanding what money means to you and each spouse and seeing the differences. But how does an advisor have that conversation and, and, and what are they looking for in those conversations to better help them navigate the relationship to get them on the same page? Yeah. Now, I never believe reasons can narrow down to like two reasons, but I'm going to give two reasons why I've seen like one partner pull back. One of them is not feeling motivated or not caring about the financial situation. And I think that comes down to financial goals. Are your financial goals just 60 years away retirement or 40 years away college funding? Or is it about funding a family vacation that they can all be together as a family? Is it about what they're where they're going to be living in five years? Is it going to be about something that feels real to them? Or is it going to be solely these overarching goals? I think the idea of breaking it down into individual family couple goals, all of that can really help foster motivation to buy into the process. I think another reason is sometimes what we call like a lack of financial self-efficacy or confidence where they really feel overwhelmed by the complexities of finances. And I think if you sense that in partners, it's important that you slow down and maybe take like the Carl Richards like napkin, like a little napkin drawing, like simplify, make it simple. Like we can have all this complexity behind the scenes, but they need to hear things that are, are in plain speak that they can understand. Mm, oh. Yeah. And it gets back to time. Sorry to cut you off. No, I want to hear what you had to say. Is It gets back to time of listening to the the individuals, both of them deeply and intently, because then you can try to create analogies to tie it back to something that they deeply understand. And that that's a skill. That's a really big skill that that is not necessarily trained on. Yeah. I wish I knew the quote, but there's a famous quote by Mark Twain that talks about like, the smartest people say things simply because to really be able to break things down in an easy to understand way, you have to understand it intently. And so mm. I think for planners who may be trying to demonstrate their expertise to clients, knowing that saying things simply does not make you less of an expert, but maybe more. <laughs> yeah. Paul Graham of Y Combinator talks about that a lot. He's like, if you can write what you want to say very easily in, le- in the fewest possible sentences, that actually makes you more intelligent than writing a whole thesis. Because oh, if you can explain it so easily with as few of words as possible, then you truly do understand it to the core that anybody else can understand. And I think that we we think that we need to make things sound so complex when really it's super simple. So the last question I'll ask before we get into the kind of the wrap-up questions is some people are like, all right, well, this sounds super interesting. Like, I need to learn a lot about this. Like, I don't know about it. Like, where, what are good resources? Your book, of course. But what are other great resources online, books, et cetera, 
that people and don't don't give away your one book that we're going to talk about <laughs> here in a second all right but uh resources that people can leverage to kind of continue to learn about this stuff yeah i hope that many will consider the master's program in at kansas state we have three tracks in our financial planning masters one of them is financial therapy so you can get a master's in financial planning and specialize in financial therapy and advanced planning. Or if you haven't gotten the CFP content, you can do financial therapy and the CFP content and graduate with a master's, which I think clients really respect and look up to. So it's a great educational outlet. Another thing is the Financial Therapy Association. They are an amazing association, tons of resources, training videos, monthly webinars. But my favorite thing is once you become a member, you can join their like once a week coffee chats where practitioners from financial planning, financial counseling, mental health fields, all of them come together and kind of share resources to be better practitioners for their clients. I think that's a great one. And then some of my favorite books have been Facilitating Financial Health by Brad Klons, um, Rick Kaler, and Ted Klons. And then the CFP board has an amazing client psychology book that I was lucky enough to contribute to. And yes, I think those were good starts. <laughs> those are good. That gives a lot of information for people to indulge on and dive into. I mean, again, I mean, this, I mean, there's so many different avenues I didn't even go down, but I, I wanted to be courteous of your time and the listener's time. And I think we touched on some amazing topics. You're incredible. And I love learning from smart people. That's why I do this podcast and uh, lots more than me. And one other way I like to learn is through reading. And so I'm always curious to ask my guests, you know, what's one book out there, not one that you've already mentioned. And we know it's your book <laughs> yes. too, right? Yes. Go buy Megan's book as well. But <laughs> What's one book out there that you think everybody should read if they haven't or reread if they have already read it? So I didn't pick a financial book, but I think it does have applications. But I picked (laughs) Essentialism is the name of the book. Uh, Essentialism is a great book that kind of helps you focus on what in your life is giving you joy and what should you be delegating and saying no to. That book was, it just freed me up to say no in a kind way, not to like avoid responsibilities, but to spend more time on things that I'm great at or enjoy. Um, so I feel less burnt out from it. I was looking at my bookshelf because I've got it up there. I just haven't read it yet. And like, you're <laughs> yeah, like the same. fifth person to tell me and I just, I need <gasps> to just pop it open and just read it. I just need to <sighs> do it. Yes. Um, I love that. I love. All right. Essentialism. <laughs> and it's Greg McEwen. McEwen, I yes. think is how you say his last good. name. Uh, maybe we'll get him on the podcast. I'd love to talk yeah. to him about it as well. So the last question I like to ask, so we talked about a ton here. And, you know, I always like to ensure that people walk away with something actionable to walk to kind of implement into their day tomorrow to make them a better person, a better professional, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. So what do you hope that the listener takes away? What's one of those actionable ideas or concepts that you hope the listener takes away from our conversation here today? Yeah, I think that if I had to nail it down to one thing, I hope that people start doing some self-exploration where do you come up with your money values? What do you what do you love or respect about how your family taught you about money and what do you wish they had done differently? Those kind of like self-exploration will make you more insightful of maybe some of the things that you should hold on to and maybe some of the things you should let go of. I love it. Megan McCoy, you are amazing. You're tenured in my book. Um, <laughs> I but love it. Uh, how I, I know I, I'm going to continue to follow you. I'm super stoked oh. to, to have this connection now with you. How can other people that are interested in following you, staying in touch, what's the best way to follow and stay in touch with you? Yes. Okay. Anybody's welcome to email me. I am a financial therapy nerd and love talking about it. So my email is simply my name at KSU, edu, Megan McCoy at KSU, edu. And then I'm not great at social media, but I do try to keep up my LinkedIn. So please find me on LinkedIn and then connect. 
You're incredible. Thank you so much for all you're doing for our industry and, and the future of our industry. So uh, keep it up and thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 